Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the program today is Head of Quantitative Index Solutions, Bobby Barnes, to unpack the latest moves in the U.S. equity markets, lower than expected initial jobless claims, and rising oil prices, and how he's navigating it all through factor investing. In terms of the current economic cycle, there are mixed signals, Bobby points out. He says some think we're at the beginning of a bull market and economic activity is going to be accelerated, but Bobby is in the camp of a late-cycle playbook rather than something that looks and feels like an early cycle. Turning to factor investing, Bobby looks at various drivers of risk and return, including the value of a company, the performance of its stocks, and profitability over time. He says the way to think about factors is that they are simply a characteristic of stocks. The way to use factors in your portfolio is through structural allocation, a cyclical approach, and as a way to fine-tune the risk-return profile of a portfolio. This podcast was recorded on September 8th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, Bobby. Great to see you again. Happy Friday. Yes, thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Great to see you here joining us. So let's tackle from your perspective when you're watching, I mean, a a week chock full of voices, of actions, of market movements. Um, what are we looking at here? What what sort of place in the cycle might this be? So, as always, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, to contextualize it and think about what's transpired over the year. Um, you know, the, we started the year with a very risk-on profile, um, but then very quickly um, gave a lot of that back. And you know, if you think about like Silicon Valley Bank, um, which went under in about the March timeframe, we were, we were wondered if there was wondering if there was something systematically uh, wrong with or impaired with our banks. Uh, but then after that, um, the market went on a tear. Seems like you know uh, investors brushed past that. Um, we're approaching market highs, and um, and then these most recent earnings period to your um, point at the preamble um, came in better than uh, many investors anticipated or expected. And so, you know, in thinking about the cycle, uh, there are uh, there are mixed signals, as we all put it. Uh, there are some who are wondering if we're at the start of another bull market and whether economic activity is going to reaccelerate. Uh, but then there are others in the other side of the camp, and I'm probably uh, over here, uh, that still sees uh, things to be concerned and cautious about um, and really prescribing more of a, a late cycle playbook uh, rather than something that uh, looks and feels more like an early cycle uh, playbook. So I, I've, been, I've been promoing you all week and saying something like it was your wording, but sort of, you know, types of factors that you might want to have on the front burner to, to be using right now. And then sort of almost a plan B factors to, to be considered sort of on the back burner. Let's just ask you straight up. What are factors? Why do investors use factors? 
Sure. Yes. And, you know, I always like to demystify what that is. Um, you know, the way to think about factors is that they're simply just characteristics of stocks uh, that have been found to outperform over time. And so, you know, although I'm a, a quantitative investor by profession, uh, really, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a quantitative or fundamental. We're, we're all kind of looking for stocks that are likely to outperform based on, you know, where we are in the economic cycle. Uh, and so just to lay it out, um, when we when I speak about factors, there are six of them or characteristics uh, that I'm usually referring to. And so just to run those down quickly, they are value, quality, uh, momentum, high dividend uh, and small size. And so those are the, uh, you know, the different types of characteristics that have been found to outperform. Uh, and in terms of thinking about how to use them, I always like to say that there are three ways that investors can think about uh, using or utilizing uh, factors within their portfolio. Uh, one is to take what I call a structural allocation to those factors, which simply means a, it's a buy and hold strategy. And in doing so, uh, the investor can participate in the long term performance benefits of those factors. Uh, okay. The other or second way is, you know, a more cyclical approach uh, because factors have been found to have their own unique performance behaviors, depending on where we are within the economic cycle. Uh, and then the last approach is to use factors as a way to fine tune the risk and uh, return profile of a portfolio. So it's it's kind of fascinating. So so of the six factors that you mentioned there, let's um again, sorry, I'm stealing your analogy. It's entirely yours. But but what is on the front burner right now? So here we are. Yeah. Of a crazy week, but I don't know if that changes things one way or the other. What are, what are the factors on the front burner? Yeah, so diving into my you know front burner back burner uh, analogy there, um, you know it is my view that all things considered, the mosaic of information I'm taking in, I do think we um, are continue to be in a late cycle environment, and so the front burner or the you know those factors that I think you should allocate the most to, uh, there are two of them. There would be uh, quality and momentum. And that's because they, uh, in a late cycle environment, when growth is slowing, those are the characteristics of stocks that tend to do best in that environment. Now, um, to fully round out the, the picture, though, as you alluded to, I also have a back burner. And what I mean by that is something I, I want to keep warm in the background just in case I need it. It's kind of like the insurance policy. Uh, and so um, those uh, factors would be, in particular, uh, low vol uh, and high dividend. And, and the reason I'm keeping those back there simmering, if you will, uh, is that I do have concerns as we get into the back half of 2023 and first half of 2024 that, um, you know, economic activity might, um, you know, it flow even further to the downside, in which case that actually would be a, a pretty big tailwind to those factors. So uh, just to sort of spell it like low vol would help you if stocks are falling, essentially. Yeah, that's right. You know, low vol is it's, it's the most defensive of all uh, the factors that I, I mentioned. Um, and, the, and the reason that I, I don't have that on the front runner is that in late cycle, markets still go up. And so, you know, low vol really shines when the, the market as a whole is actually falling. Um, and so, you know, if it's the case that, you know, the, the market uh, will continue its path up, I think the S&P year to date is up. Um, you know, call it 17 percent. TSX is up seven. Uh, EFA is up 10. You know, these are these are pretty robust numbers. And so if we continue on that trajectory, you know, low vol won't offer as much participation in the upside as uh, the market upside as you would get with uh, the former ones that I mentioned, those being momentum and quality. Fascinating. So so let, let's go into 
essentially the pieces of the story that you hear a lot about. I'd like you to comment on them. The idea that we've had these interest rates, we know the pace they've gone at, it's been a bit dizzying. And then you get into the discussion of drags and lags and, you know, the, basically the timing, right? I mean, a lag is timing. Um, yes. So t- take us through that in terms of how many months it takes for an interest rate hike to bite. Yes. So there's a lot to digest there. Right. And as you mentioned, we've had a very busy week. Uh, the Bank of Canada paused. Uh, the uh, U.S. Fed, I think, is meeting on September the 20th. So we got a little bit of time here. But um, in the last meeting, they actually raised re- they raised rates. But that was after, I think, a, a pause that they had in June. Similarly, ECB is meeting um, uh, soon. And, and, you know, at their last meeting, they, they raised rates as well. Um, and so all that being said, I think that one of the th- the things that's being that's, that a lot of investors I think are missing about the market is that with it being up year to date um, and and some declaring that everything's all fine, uh, as you mentioned, um, Fed interest rate policy it has it does exactly what it's supposed to do, but it does so with a lag with you know again the the, the timing of the effect it's not immediate. So if they want to stimulate and they lower rates today is a way of stimulating. You won't actually feel that until in my work, it takes about 15 months. So we've been in a rate hiking cycle. So the rates are going up. And um, and so assuming, you know, I, I mentioned the, these, you know, these three feds are, um, uh, around the, the you know world here, U.S., Canada and ECB. Let's just assume they all stop today. Right. They all no more hikes. The problem with that is that. We still have, if you look back, um, like the U.S. Fed, for example, started its rate hiking uh, cycle in March of 2022. So if you count the number of hikes between that point and today, there have been 21. And if we assume they stop today, uh, out of that 21, about half, a little, you know, over half or 11 of those hikes haven't yet had their impact. They haven't hit the economy yet. And that's part of what informs uh, my view of caution going into 20, um, you know, in the, the back half of 2023 and 2024, because that's when we're going to actually feel the impacts from those hikes and and the uh, intended outcome from those, obviously, is to slow down the market because um, or to slow down the economy. You know, the Fed is trying to keep things from overheating. And so, so you know, we like to talk about mortgages. You like to talk about mortgages, Canada. We love to talk about mortgages because it's scary how many variable rate mortgages there are and to what extent people will need to refinance over the next little while. So it's going to probably hit many people there. What about sort of the knock-on, if we get away from the mortgage piece, to what the consumer is left with that they can spend um, from the interest rate rates that, that, you know, are starting to bite? Like, tell us about how the consumer starts to either contract or, you know, what do you think they do? So there are a couple of things I would say about the consumer because, you know, to... To, to echo back to what I mentioned before about there being mixed signals, uh, let's start by by highlighting that uh, consumer spending year to date has actually been very strong. Um, and, uh, you know, while that's not a, a leading indicator, it is an indicator of where we are right now. And so that sounds great. Uh, that being said, um, there are several things brewing that impact the consumer. Um, you know, to your point about, you know, we all love houses and, and the like. And uh, with interest rates rising, obviously, the affordability of uh, housing has diminished. Um, you know, the average rate here in the U.S. right now is 7 percent. Uh, and while that actually hasn't caused the price of housing to decline uh, uh, much, if any at all, it has reduced activity significantly. Uh, and that kind of gets to this, this, this 
supply demand imbalance where there's still a lot of demand for housing. But in terms of the uh, the unit sold, like the number of houses sold, uh, the amount of um, uh, of affordability has diminished so much that that activity has um, dried up um, uh, or reduced quite substantially. Um, but then, um, you know, going further, uh, one of the interesting things that uh, I've ob observed about the consumer and maybe have as well have observed this, uh, they've got part of the reason why the spending has been so strong and robust is that they have they still have excess savings from the pandemic where we fed in a lot of stimulus uh, in, in, um, uh, in various parts of the world and uh, to help support, uh, you know, these these consumers uh, while we they we made our way through the shutdown. And so what's interesting, uh, what I'm seeing there is that when you look at the, so the, the consumer has been burning off that excess um, for about a year now. And when I look at the uh, trajectory of that burn off and when it's expected to be exhausted, what I'm seeing is that in Q4 of this year, um, you know, all that excess savings has, that, that has uh, helped support the spending, that's going to be gone. And so then the question is, okay, well, what happens to consumer spending after that? The other thing I see brewing, um, you know, in the context of this consumer being strong and how strong are they? It's interesting that underneath the hood, when you look at credit card delinquencies uh, and you look at auto uh, delinquencies, um, those things are actually rising. You know, despite all the 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 other headline optics that we're talking about, you know, consumers spending being robust, jobs being plentiful, et cetera, et cetera. But wait, wait a minute. If it's so good. Why are some consumers maybe in a different, you know, different categories or income levels? Why are they becoming more delinquent, not less, more delinquent on their, uh, uh, you know, debt obligations? Uh, and so the question is, well, if you, I always like to have a 12 to 18 month horizon. So if I simplify the investment decision to say, well, are they likely to be better off 12 months from now or worse off directionally? I think that the trend that we're starting to see with these delinquencies um, it's going to get worse. You know, once those excess, the excess savings is burned off, I think that, you know, there, you could see um, ramifications there for the consumer. And so hence the caution that I mentioned at the outset. Right, right. Fascinating. Um, when we spoke to you, it would be, gosh, probably nine months ago, it might have been longer, but there was this discussion of inventories that, um, you know, there were none <laughs> and then there were, and then it was sort of burning through that. Where are we in that cycle right now? What do you see? Yeah, so there's a there's a very interesting narrative, and it kind of dovetails into my my next mixed signal statement earlier. So I, I partner very closely with our asset allocation research team, track inventories very closely, and um, this is actually a, a somewhat bullish signal that they're seeing. Where you know we've kind of come full circle. We had too much, then uh, you know the um, the companies you know have done a good job at. Uh, liquidating inventory. And so now the, the bullish narrative is that we're, we're potentially um, approaching a uh, restocking cycle where, um, you know, companies need to, you know, they've you know, burned down some inventories and they need to, you know, to, to build them back up to support, you know, lo and behold, those consumers that I mentioned before. Um, it's all that sounds great. Like if it, if the, they, they, they do restock and the consumers do buy, that's actually, that's all a great and bullish narrative. Um, but, you know, there, as I mentioned, there are a lot of caveats in that. And so 
um, you know, with that restocking cycle, you need um, these the robust consumer spending to continue in order to justify that restocking. Otherwise, you're kind of right back to where we were, where, you know, you've got too much. Fascinating. So, so for now, that that's kind of bullish because it's 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 hanging in there a little bit. Um, yeah, that could be bullish and supportive of, of manufacturing. So as okay. your viewers have heard me talk about my favorite expression of economic activity, which is uh, these ISM. Um, uh, uh, PMI indicators, uh, you know, if you look at um, the ISM, you know, you, you might look at the, the the chart of it and think that it was bottoming, uh, which it might be. And if we do get um, a, a, a reacceleration of manufacturing due to the uh, restocking that you and I are talking about of inventories, uh, that could cause the ISM to, to rise. Yeah, and we've got some ISM numbers out of, of the last little while there. Um, so, uh, take us through some of the interesting movements that have created actually the the momentum or part of the pieces of the momentum story this year. I mean, AI for sure is one of them. The tech story itself. There seems to be uh, people on both sides of of talking about whether that's that's gone its full to its full potential for this year or not. But tell us a bit about you know is that real? Is that going to continue? What tell us how that works in terms of the momentum factor? Yeah. So. There are a couple of things there. You know, I, AI is certainly the biggest story of the year. Um, you know, when we when you kind of uh, trace back to the start of the year, as I mentioned, um, you know, very bullish start. But that's that's usually um, seasonal. Like the, you know, the January effect is what we call it uh, in, in quant speak, where markets tend to to uh, to rise, and you know, you want to be a long risk, um, even though it's episodic. It's very short lived. But then uh, when you really attribute why the market uh, rallied after what we experienced with the, the banks in March. A lot of that was due to the AI story. Um, but the the nuance here that you need to be mindful of with respect to that AI story is that I, I liken it to a gold rush, where if you really wanted to profit from the gold rush, it was better to be the, the company selling the, the picks and the shovels as opposed to the, you know, the speculators out there actually searching for the gold. And AI feels a lot like that. Like when I talk to our fundamental analysts, um, it's very clear that the companies in tech that are providing their the pick the meta use a metaphor that those, that those picks and shovels, right? These are you know the semiconductor chips or the software that's built on top of that. Um, they're clearly uh, you know uh, winners within that space, and you see it within their their earnings and the revisions of those earnings. But when you look at it from the other angle of okay, companies that are going to utilize AI to potentially enhance their business. And so um, I talked to our biotech analyst where he says nearly all of the companies he covers are saying that they're going to utilize AI to, you know, to, to make their discoveries faster and, you know, more profitable and the like. Um, that all sounds great. But the thing is, if everybody does it, you've kind of competed away that advantage. And so, you know, from a stock performance perspective, you might not get outperformance, you know, from, from that space. That's, you know, those are the people who are actually the, the gold rush people who are looking for the gold, not the ones just selling the picks and shovels to the people. Um, so, okay. It's, it's always interesting to hear everything you say about everything, but just because you happen to be a rocket scientist, I'm quite interested <laughs> to hear how you think, like genuinely, he's a rocket scientist, um, how you think that will be adopted, you know, sort of the adoption cycle uh, to the point where you say it, it may to an extent be a bit neutral because everyone's doing it on some level. Like there must be some companies that are much 
better prime, maybe not just companies, are, are certain sectors like who's prime to do this well? Is it just a well-run company is prime to do this well? Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly, um, uh, you know, some companies are going to be better positioned than others. And, you know, the way I think about it, I'll use my own team uh, as an example where, you know, I've got um, a team of analysts working for me, um, you know, who have quant skills and, and you know, uh, uh, they do they write coding. And and what I've seen within my own team is that they've been able to use AI to um, uh, help them more rapidly solve a problem where they, they, they say they have in their mind, okay, I need to write some code that does X. And they can actually, you know, type this question in, like, how do I write code to, you know, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying here, but how do I write code to add these two numbers? And then the AI machine will like, oh, here's, here's an example code of, that'll do that, you know, what you want there. Um, and so, you know, any company that has, uh, made the investment to have, um, uh, you know, the technology and the software uh, available to their employees to, um, so they can quickly access and, and become more efficient in uh, their day-to-day work. You know, they're going to see those benefits. But, um, you know, and I think, you know, when you look at across different industries, I, the way I kind of bifurcate who's going to, who's better positioned for that versus others, more so it's kind of like, um, almost like goods uh, versus services, you know, where you know, in, in some cases, you know, like within the service industry, as example, like the example I gave doesn't help an airline pilot fly a plane, right? There's not, there's not really a use case. I'm glad to hear that. You still need a pilot. Okay. Yes. You still got to be a pilot. Um, although I guess maybe that's not a great example because we have autopilot, but, autopilot, <laughs> um, yeah. but you, know, you get the point, right? You know, if, if I go maybe to different service, where it's, you know, um, um, restaurant industry, you know, there are going to be limits here uh, in certain places of, of where AI is, is um, the degree to which AI is helpful versus not. Then there are also going to be losers, right? That, that, that just, for whatever reason, haven't been able to get that sparked and, and implemented and, and use it you know, in a useful way. Um, how do factors help you with that? Or do they? Maybe they don't, do they? Well, no, I would say they do, you know, and and, and the way that um, they help you with that is, you know, first first and foremost, momentum is, if you think about what momentum, well, first, firstly, let's define what momentum is. It's simply investing in those stocks that have outperformed the most over the last 12 months. That's plain and simple all it's doing. So then you ask the secondary question, okay, well, well, why do stocks outperform others over time? Uh, fundamentally speaking, stocks outperform other stocks or the market because they're able to grow earnings faster than those other stocks of the market. And so if you do, so to connect the dots then with what I'm saying, if AI is helpful in uh, uh, allowing a company to accelerate their earnings growth, then investing in a momentum factor is going to be one way of Participating or, you know, uh, in, in owning those stocks that, uh, are the winners as opposed to the losers. Um, you know, to, to your point, uh, quality is another one where, you know, if you, if you are growing your earnings faster, then you're more than likely going to have higher profits. So the quality factor then is a kind of a, a bank shot way of participating in those winners. That's so fascinating. Um, do you think that this is just, I was asking for your opinion, but do you think, so if we're late cycle and we don't really know, but if we are, is, is the real story for laying the groundwork for AI in sort of the economy, is that next cycle? So I do think 
Um, so the, the thing I would weave in here is that we haven't mentioned is growth. And so, okay. you know, AI is one expression, you know, that it's a, uh, uh, people are anticipating growth and, and AI is being a driver of that. And so, um, within late cycle growth as a concept actually gets fairly scarce, you know, you know, growth more broadly across the market is slowing. And so any of those companies that are having growth, um, are unique and, and zero and, you know, investors reward them for that. And so it is my thinking that, uh, you know, for not only for the duration of uh, late cycle, that, that growth um, and AI's expression of that will continue to work. But in the possible event of an economic contraction, I actually think that, um, you know, these growth companies, assuming that, you know, their earnings don't evaporate. And I, I think that their earnings actually will be more sticky. Um, you know, they would actually uh, be the winners in the down market as well. Are we talking about tech stocks? Yeah, that's the way I would think about it. I mean, it's, you know, tech obviously is, are, is the, you know, those are the, 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 the sellers of the picks and the shovels. And so yeah. um, I think that ironically, even though tech is, is usually or historically thought of as being a cyclical industry and, yeah. and you know, economically sensitive, I, I actually expect that they will behave um, more or more similar to like a lower beta stock in a down market, um, mostly because I, I think their earnings will hold up. And so to contrast that, um, you know, is the other side of that is usually the financials. You know, tech and financials are really the two bets that you're you're pair trading when you go from a, a growth style versus not value factor, but value style. And financials, uh, I think, have a different risk in that, you know, we saw some of it uh, earlier this year where it was mostly due to the investments that banks made and they were upside down in those invest investments. So when they're um, when their clients pull their capital, that caused losses. The the next phase for banks, you know, financials, I'm just kind of banks, is, is, you know, a broad stroke definition of that. The next step is a credit cycle where to my point about the consumer not being as strong as we think, you know, the delinquencies are going up. Um, and so for a bank, that means non-performing loans are going to go up. They're going to be more write-offs. And so in a slowing growth uh, and or recession, you know, those things that get more exacerbated for a bank. And, and so hence, you know, going back to the financials versus uh, um, uh, tech trade on, yeah. on the financial side, you've got, you know, a, a, a headwind potentially to the earnings. But then on the tech side, you have a tailwind potentially to the earnings. And so that's how you can think about that. That's fascinating. Um, one question that I want to ask you to kind of leave investors with a particular thought for today. But what's the difference between value style investing and, and value the factor? Yeah. So this is, you know, a big pet peeve of mine because uh, people always conflate the two. And, and, and understandably, because they, they both say value in the name. Um, the value style Although it says value in the name, it's actually not value at all. When you when you run a, a, a decomposition of the returns, like how do you attribute the returns to value style? What you find is that all the returns um, or 70 percent of them, to be exact, come from a sector bet. Right. So nothing to do with you know, how cheap the stocks were at all. It just comes to um, how the performance of the financial sector did. Uh, whereas value factor, and especially the way that uh, we at Fidelity Canada um, design our factors, uh, you know, we design them to give shareholders exposure to ch to cheap stocks in a pure way without the secondary bet, which is a a, a sector bet. 
And so we like to, do we do that? Do we do it that way so that uh, our shareholders are able to make those bets independently? So I can say, okay, do I want to own cheap socks? Yes. But in addition to that, do I want to be overweight tech, right? Like it's, you know, you don't, you don't have to combine those two decisions into the same decision. Um, and so it offers more flexibility that way. And so, and so that's, that's the key difference uh, between value factor and value style. That's so helpful because it can sort of slice through uh, that and, and get to the factor itself. Um, what do you what do you want investors to take away? I mean, it, it's you're wrapping up for us uh, for sure a tricky week. Yes. Um, so I think uh, what I would say is that yeah, there's you know it was a tricky week, um, and I think that, you know we're probably going to see a lot more of it. You know, as we mentioned, we've got you know. If, the U.S. Fed on September 20th, uh, ECB September 14th, a lot of, you know, news and there's, there's, you know, a lot of wall of worry with, you know, Apple in China, you know, who knows? And this is, this is always the case within investing. Um, and so all that to say is that, um, I would probably wrap with saying that, um, this, you know, despite, uh, these, these near term, uh, noise, if you will, you gotta kind of keep a longer term focus. And, and, and that being said, you know, there's going to be episodes where I call them counter trend episodes, where if we're in late cycle and that calls for, you know, quality and momentum, um, you're going to have counter trend episodes for whatever <laughs> noisy reason where, you know, the, something, the opposite thing might work, where it might be, oh, actually, it's small caps that are working, right? But if you keep the long term focus, because most investors can't be short term tactical anyway, um, then I think that will lead to a better outcome over time. Bobby Barnes, it's um, it's such a privilege to speak with you. Thank you for making time for us here on on this the end of this busy week, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.